So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. So some of you may know this, but Megan and I are in the process of training for a sprint triathlon. <laughs> there are days that we wake up and we go, we got this. And there are other days we wake up and we go, what are we thinking? Are you kidding me? There's no way we can do this. But in mid-August, we're going to be doing that. So we've been in the pool a lot and, and on the bike and, 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 of course, on the trail. And Wednesday mornings, about 6.45, I'm doing the loop around White's Road Park, and I often bump into to Mike O'Donnell. He's uh, running much faster than I am around the White's Road Park Loop, um, but it's always good to, to see him. Sometimes we stop and pray. Sometimes uh, uh, he prays for me, and sometimes I just pray for air uh, during those times. Um, but, uh, you know, distance runners have this thing called a runner's high. Uh, and if you're a runner, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not, you think that runners make this up. And I do too. Uh, and it goes like this. The more they run, they get this sort of thing running through their, their bones through their bloodstream that they're just like, I could do this all day, which again, I think is ridiculous. I don't understand that. Um, but this runner's high, when they, when they experience it, I mean, Bill, you probably experience it all the time, but this idea, you just keep going, he said, it's just, the more I run, the more I want to run some more. Again, I, my runner's high is when I'm done and I sit on the couch for an hour. Like, that's my runner's high. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this idea of a runner's high, and I was thinking about the series that we've been in, which we're ending today. Um, what does it mean to have a giver's high? <laughs> I think we may have actually experienced a little glimpse of a, gl- of a giver's high just this morning. Um, and here's, and you've probably experienced it too, beyond even what we heard of these stories. Have you ever given a gift and been convinced in the process that while the receiver really enjoyed it, you were convinced you actually got more out of it than they did. I think that's a glimpse of a giver's high, where we just go, I don't care what they think of it. I don't care if they even find out. The fact that I was able to do it, oh man, it makes me want to do it more. Makes me want to do it more. And we've been in this series on giving and stewardship and generosity, and we've talked about this big question, am I the owner of my stuff or am I the steward of my stuff? Because how we answer that makes all the difference. And I was thinking about this idea of a giver's high, and two passages came to mind this week. Um, The first one is in um, uh, Psalm 50, and God's talking. He says, I have no need for a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. And I know every bird of the mountains, and the insects in the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, for all that is in it. That's a giver's high of understanding. I'm not an owner. God's the owner. I'm just stewarding what he's entrusted to me. Talk about a giver's high. Listen to this, Proverbs 11, 25. The generous will prosper... And those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Giver's eye, right? Those who refresh others will be refreshed. Now, we're going to look at a very familiar passage today in Matthew 14, but um, we're going to do it from a, what I think is a pretty unfamiliar angle. This has been really fun for me to do, do teaching prep on this particular passage. This story, you, most of us in this room, my guess is you learned at a young age If you went to VBS, you probably learned this story. (laughs) This story is in all four gospel accounts. And it's easy to read this story and to not see the role that we have to potentially play in it. So right in the middle of Matthew 14, uh, we're going to be looking at this passage here in verses 13 to 21. 
Jesus is spreading the message of the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God, that God's reign is here, and he's telling everyone, and people are captivated by this message of the rule and the reign of God, and they flock to see him, and wherever he goes, he's drawing these huge crowds around him, uh, which actually at times causes inconveniences and problems (laughs) um, because so many people want to be around him. And then Jesus hears terrible news at the beginning of John 14, or sorry, of Matthew 14. It says that John the Baptist had been uh, beheaded by a cruel political power play. And he, this, Jesus just wants to be alone. So he tries to get away, and maybe it's just to clear his head a little bit and think. So he gets in a boat, and he tries to escape the crowds uh, by rowing to some remote part on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. But the crowds see him. They see where he's going. The message spreads, and they run around the lake and meet him when he's actually trying to get away from them. He shows up, and there's all these people. But instead of becoming agitated and upset, saying, hey, can you just leave me alone? It says he actually had compassion on them, that he changed. He had compassion on them. He wanted to help. And he's teaching, and he's healing in this. And his disciples come to him and say, hey, listen, Jesus, now we're out here in the middle of nowhere. And there's no supermarket open this late in the day, and people are hungry. We should just dismiss them because we can't provide for all of their needs. That's the wisest thing to do. Let's just send them on their way. By the way, the number of people that day was probably between 15 and 20,000 people. Now, we know it as the feeding of the 5,000, but only men were recorded in terms of being present there. But it really should be the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. That's probably a good estimate if most men who were there were probably married, and we can assume they, at least some of them, uh, had uh, one or multiple children. And what's interesting, if you think about 15 to 20,000 people, there were fewer than 3,000 people at the largest village around Galilee, okay? The largest village had 3,000. Most of them only had uh, several hundred, okay? So think of, it would be like 100,000 people tonight find out that Bono is here in Lansdale. And so word gets out on social media, and 100,000 people show up in Lansdale at 10 p.m. tonight. Well, even if the grocery stores and the restaurants were open at 10 p.m., <laughs> you, you can't possibly expect 100,000 people showing up in a borough of 16,000 people. It just would swallow it up. So the response by the disciples actually seems pretty logical. Seems pretty responsible, actually. Dismiss them, let them go home, let's just get them on their way. In fact, if we're honest, you and I would probably give that response too. We probably would say, you know what, hey, it's been a while, let's send them on their way, it makes the most sense. Send them home, they're getting hangry, we probably can't help them at this point. But Jesus turns it on his disciples, and he says, they don't need to leave. Why don't you give them something to eat? Why don't you give them something to eat? Um, Jesus, uh, us give them them something to eat. Um, There's five loaves of bread, two fish. In all due respect, Rabbi, do the math. In fact, one of the other Gospels records Philip saying, it would take half a year's wages just to give them a little bite. And it's actually quite true. If you do the math and kind of look, uh, break it down, it would take about 200 days, about seven months of a working person's average salary in the first century to actually feed that amount of people just a little bit. 
He actually maybe was more of an accountant than we realize. But now another gospel also says that Jesus did this to test them because he already knew what he was going to do and he wanted to see how they would respond. And then when they, he finds out about, you know, five loaves and two fish, he says, bring them here to me. Right? Object lesson. Here they are. And, he, and then it said he directed them, all the thousands of people, to sit in little groups all along the grass. Mark records along the green grass. Why would Mark do that? He's wanting to say it's the springtime. It's brown grass in the fall, spring. It's nice and green and lush. That's actually one of the reasons we know that little detail in Mark, that we know that Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years. It's because we know that was the springtime when this particular story happened. It's kind of cool. So he directs them to sit down, and in verse 19, it says, And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And not only did they eat everything, we know the story, there were leftovers. People condemned in the first century being wasteful with food. Uh, it was an ethical thing. You'd never just throw away food. You would always collect it. It was so scarce in the first century. So there were leftovers, not only leftovers, Mark and others record, including Matthew, that there were 12 basketfuls left over. 12 is a number uh, in Scripture of exceeding amount, so just the full amount. So as much as the disciples could haul away, 12 disciples, 12 big bags, 12 big baskets, they dragged them away. And by the way, the people who were listening to Jesus, who were hungry that day, and were completely full from the bread provided that day, would have thought about their ancestors in three particular situations. They would have thought about their ancestors with Moses and how while they were wandering the wilderness, God provided every day with manna, right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's exactly what God did for not once, not twice, not for four weeks, not for four years, but for 40 years. God did that with the people, providing for them. Jesus is now doing this. A lot of people think, is this the new Moses? This Jesus guy, maybe he's the new Moses. And they would have also remembered about the great prophet Elijah. And Elijah provided bread for a starving widow in 1 Kings. They'd say, is this a great prophet like Elijah? And then they might say, there's another prophet that came after Elijah, Elisha, who was mentored by Elijah. And they'd say, Elisha, the prophet, provided bread for a woman in extreme poverty where she had tons of leftovers too in 2 Kings. They go... Maybe he really is a great prophet. Maybe even better than Elijah and Elisha, Elisha combined. And you may be thinking, okay, Jared, this is a great story. It's awesome. I remember this. I remember this from VBS. Thank you. But how does this relate to generosity and giving? You say, Jesus gave. Yeah, sure, sure, Jesus gave. But what about us? And this is where I want to make the turn here to have you consider something maybe you hadn't thought before with this passage. What we often miss in this story is the significant role that the disciples played. Honest question here. Why does Jesus involve the disciples? Could be. I mean, why didn't he do it just by himself? Right? I mean, he very easily could have said, he could have wowed them, right? He could have pulled them off on the side and said, now listen, boys, stay there, watch this. Show how he works through people. It's exactly right. 
It might have been more efficient and more effective if he just said, stand aside, boys, and watch this. But he actually wanted to include them in this. Jesus invites others to participate in his ministry. And he never uses the word pipes. We use it here at Renew. But when it comes to Jesus doing things, he says, I'm looking for pipes. I'm looking for people that will work with me. You give them something to eat. And by the way, he could have fed them without five loaves and two fishes, right? He could have easily just said, everybody's stomach is going to go from hangry to full. Ooh, ah, I feel better now. He could have done it. But he used what was there. Even as small as it was, he used what was there. And that's why I think verse 19, the end of verse 19 in your Bible, I really want to encourage you to circle it, underline it, highlight it if it's on your phone. This idea that he gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the people. Jesus was gracious enough to include them in the process of the miracle. Jesus was gracious enough to include them in the process of the miracle. Another honest question. When did the miracle happen? It was in Jesus' hands. The miracle happens when it's in the hands of the disciples. They not only got to participate in the miracle, they also were recipients of it too. God in his grace not only provides for everyone's hunger, the disciples, we can assume, got to eat too. And in the process of God asking us to participate and we join in with him that the miracle happens, but then our needs are met too. Uh, Billy Sunday um, actually played uh, eight seasons of Major League Baseball in the late 1800s. Uh, in fact, his last season in the majors, he played for the Phillies in 1890. Kind of cool. But that's not why he was famous. That's not his most significant contribution. He became a Christian while he was playing baseball, so much so that he actually retired early from baseball so he could become an evangelist. It's kind of interesting. Now, some of you may have heard of Billy Sunday. We've heard of Billy Graham. Billy Sunday was way more famous than Billy Graham in his day. So imagine Billy Graham used to play Major League Baseball, comes to faith, and then ends up being Billy Graham. I mean, that's, that's what happened to Billy Sunday. In fact, um, they, they, there are people that honestly believe that have studied this that believe that Billy Sunday helped lead over a million people to Christ. Well, that's crazy. The late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, this week, I, I was reading some of his sermons, and I read a sermon that he gave about the feeding of the 5,000. And this is what Billy Sunday said. He said, Jesus did not feed the multitude. He created the food and asked his disciples to distribute it. Jesus was the chef, not the waiter at the banquet. Jesus created salvation, the only food that will feed the spiritual hunger of the world. The task of distributing the food was in the hands of his followers. Billy Sunday's really getting on what's so important for us to hear, especially in this series on giving. What implications does this have for us? I think it has a lot. 
Like it has a lot for us. The good shepherd wants to provide for his sheep. Now, in another gospel, it actually says that Jesus saw the crowd when he got out on the other side, and they're all there trying to get away from them. They show up, and it says, and he looked at them and had compassion on them like a shepherd has when he sees a sheep. Jesus wants to provide as our good shepherd for us as his sheep. He has that compassion for us. And then Jesus started with what was small and seemingly inadequate. You got five and, five and two? We'll take five and two. You have 400 bucks? We'll take 400 bucks. And then he invited God directly into the process, right? He took the bread and he said he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and he broke it and he distributed it. By the way, we were talking about this this morning in the upper room. Some of you say, where do we get this idea of praying before meals? Saying grace, where did that come from? Many people trace it to this story. What did Jesus do before everybody ate? He took it, he blessed it, he thanked God for it, he distributed it, we ate. If we want to be like Jesus, people said, let's do what Jesus did. Before he ate, he blessed, he thanked, he distributed Kind of cool. But he started with what he had. He invited God into the process. And he gave a few small elements of food to the disciples so that they could pass it on, and he asked them to be pipes, and that's when the miracle happened. You give them something to eat, Jesus said. You be the miracle that I use in people's lives. I provide, you distribute. I'll be the water, you be the pipe. I'll be the chef, you be the waiter of the banquet. It's mine. It's my food, he says. I created it, but I want you to help give it away. And that's why I love the ministry that we support in India. I'm not going to say it online since we post these online. I can't say this right now during this because right now um, there are Hindu radicals that actually we've been told listen to our podcast because they know we support a ministry in India. So, if you're listening on the podcast, hello, Hindu radicals, we love you, we pray for you. <laughs> but you know which ministry I'm talking about. And you know the video that we've shown when we're, this isn't recorded. How cool is that? We took an Advent offering of our church, and we were able to put it together and answer a 15-year-old prayer. God's the chef, we just got to be the waitstaff. pretty cool. It's not loaves and fishes to provide a meal in the wilderness. It's dollars and cents to provide a van for missionaries in India. And I don't know about you, and here's where we make a little bit of another turn. I don't know about you, but I forget this a lot. Haven't you experienced God like totally showing up, totally providing, and then we freak out like a few weeks later? I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to happen. We forget God's provision in our lives. We forget that he takes care of us, that he's our good shepherd, that he has compassion on us when he thinks about us. And then we revert back to worrying and being tight-fisted and how can I be generous? How can I give stuff away? I mean, I got needs and how's it going to be taken care of? Just a chapter later in Matthew, if you just flip a little bit to the right in your Bible to Matthew 15, there's the story of the feeding of the 4,000 men. Right, which is about twelve to 15,000 people, still less than this original story. 
Three days, it says, the people have no food. And Jesus says he's really concerned that they might get up and walk home and collapse on the ground. That's how hungry they are. He's worried for their health and safety and lives. And what do the disciples say? Where are we going to find enough bread to feed all these people? Dude, do you just remember what happened like one chapter earlier? Where are we going? How in the world are we going to feed? Dude. I wonder if Jesus gave the, the dude, 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 dude. It was almost verbatim. The same thing they said, it's almost verbatim that they said what Jesus did with more people around. And this time they have seven loaves and a few fish. And yet again, everyone is completely satisfied. And disciples pick up seven baskets full of bread. Same story. Which, by the way, right after this, Jesus and his disciples get in a boat after the 4,000. And wouldn't you know it, the disciples forget the bread. And what do they say? Oh, no, what are we going to do? We forgot our bread. Are you kidding me? But here's the deal. It is easy for us to think, you idiot disciples, how can you be so thick-skulled? Guess what? We are often the disciples, are we not? We are the ones that begin to fret when we just saw God show up here in ways that we never thought, how in the world are we going to get out of this? Boom, God provides an answer that doesn't always make sense. And then next month we go, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. I can't give a, I can't, I, this. And I wonder if he's like, do you remember what I just did? Do you remember I'm your good shepherd? Don't you think I... Maybe it's just me, <laughs> but this is what happens in my life. And then what happens when we fret and worry? We let fear take over, and when we fear, we clench our fists. Fear and generosity never go together, right? You know, to be honest with you, while we forget so often, just like these disciples, it's one of the main reasons that we take communion together every time we gather. Why do we do this in our gatherings time after time after time after time? It's because we forget that God is our provision time after time after time after time. We forget he's our good shepherd time after time after time after time. We forget that he's provided and will continue to provide for his kids time after time after time after time. And I'll, I'll end with this. If God can't be trusted, don't ever give away another dime of your money again. If God can't be trusted, don't ever give in here at Renew ever again. But if God can be trusted as the one who provides time after time, after time, after time, then you and I get to be generous people all the time. 
If he is a God who can be trusted, then you can be the waiter while he's the chef time after time after time. We're going to end this series in just a moment, but just because the series is ending doesn't mean that we have to be done. So here are two resources I'm going to give you, okay? Because I want to make sure I'm preaching, but I want to make sure I'm teaching and equipping. Doug and I want to make sure this isn't just up here, that we do this during the week. Some of you have been really excited and saying, what book should I read? What are, if we want to keep growing in this area in our personal finances or wanting to learn more, what do we do? I got two things for you. One of them is, I've worked with some other people on this, to develop an actual sheet of resources of recommended books. If you want to if you say, there's lots of books out there. If I want to, what do I do? So we've got a one-page document that we're going to make available to you that if any of you want to say, hey, I want to read more, you don't have to read all of them. I just want to encourage you to pick one. And it's in different areas. It could be personal finances. It could be um, how we teach our kids about money. Um, it could be how we think about the theology of giving, even further than what we've talked about here. Whatever it is, we've got a sheet that breaks it down to different categories that we want to give to you, number one. Okay? Number two, there are three individuals that have said that work in finances or accounting here within Renew that actually have said, I want to help anybody who has any questions at Renew to think through this thing more specifically with their finances if they're interested. Um, and so Jason Brand and Peter Matt and Sam Class have all said, if anybody wants to sit down and talk with us, we'd be glad to help. They work within finance and accounting issues every day and every week in their jobs. And so if confidentially you just wanted to sit down and just talk through some things, uh, how much is saving versus hoarding, um, how do I put together, what is retirement? You know, some of you hear about a retirement fund, what the heck is it? Your jobs offer it, you may not even know it. Um, but just to help us think more wisely with God's resources that he's entrusted to us. So we've got that document for you, and then we've got these three individuals. And if you don't know those individuals, come and talk to me, and I'd be glad, Doug and I would be glad to introduce you uh, to them. But we're here to help you, even though this series is ending. doesn't mean that we have to stop giving or we have to stop thinking about it or stop talking about it. But I'm so proud of you all through this series and the way you've leaned into what is often an emotional topic and many churches ignore and downplay and don't talk about it. That we want to talk about the things that matter to Jesus. And he talked about these a lot. And so I'm really proud of you. The stories, the way that many of you are secretly giving. Some of you have handed us money and said, please give it to that person, but don't tell them it's from us. It's been so fun to be a part of that process. So I just want to encourage you, keep going, keep doing it, keep running after it, because he really can be trusted, who provided manna in the wilderness, who provided for 15 to 20,000 people, 12 to 15,000 people later, and yet was still patient with those disciples who didn't get it. So if you say, oh, I'm retreating back to fear, guess what? God wants to challenge us, but he's patient with us. To say, just trust me. Lean in more. I love you. Let's do this together. I'll make the food. You all be the wait staff and distribute it. And let's do this together. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this series that we've had, and thank you for this, this story of the feeding of the 5,000.
Lord, maybe some of us have never thought about why the disciples were involved and, or when the miracle happened in the story. But I pray we would be the kinds of people that would always be looking to say, Lord, is this someone that you want me to bless? Lord, are, am I viewing this as being an owner or being a steward? Help us to be the kinds of people that when we get to the end of our days, Jesus looks at us and says, you stewarded everything that I entrusted to you. Not just the money, but your experiences and your passions and your networks and your energy and your connections and your friendships for the sake of the kingdom. We want to hear that. And we also want to say thank you for including us in the miracle when you didn't have to. You could have wowed the crowd and impressed others and us by simply saying, step aside, children, and watch me work. But instead, you said, come closer, children, and watch me work through you. And may we never forget that that's the kind of God that you are who invites us in to join with you in these great stories that make us cheer and clap and cry that's the invitation available to us, and we thank you for that. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.